This is a sermon from the Highlands Congregation of Park Church. We hope it helps you walk with the Lord and lead others to Christ. Learn more and find more resources at parkchurch.org. The scripture this morning is from Matthew 9, 14 through 17. Matthew 9, 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is a new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But the new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you. Good morning, Park Church. So good to see you. Awesome seeing all these parents and little ones up here. It's amazing what God is doing here. Uh, So thankful to be a part of this church uh, with you. Um, I want to welcome everyone. My name is Chris, uh, one of the pastors here at at Park Church. Uh, For those of you who are joining us online, we're so glad you're here with us as well. Uh, Hopefully you have your Bible open there to Matthew chapter 9. Uh, verses 14 to 17. We're continuing on in our series in Matthew's gospel. I just want to let you know up front, this is how we're going to approach the passage today, be a little bit different. We're going to spend the first half of the message kind of explaining the passage because there's a lot of interesting cultural stuff going on here. Just want to make sure we understand what we have in our text here. And then we'll spend some time uh, in the second half of the message doing the application. All right. So first half, explanation. Second half, Application. Now, let's get started. Notice how the text begins. Look at verse 14 there. Uh, It begins with an accusation couched in the form of a question. Uh, How many of you have ever uh, received that kind of accusation uh, where it was supposed to be a question, but really they were accusing you? Uh, I was thinking about that this week, a couple years ago. I was at a church that I used to pastor in California. And I had spent all day, I'd been preaching all day long. We had about four services, three in the morning, one at night. And so I, it was the evening service. I was exhausted and I was at the back door, the exit where everybody would come through. And I was back there to say, you know, hi, talk to people, uh, wish them a good week, that sort of thing. And I saw a gentleman coming right for me. All right. So just so y'all know, pastors know when you're angry with them. All right. <laughs> We have a special radar, right? We, we, we can kind of hone in on that, but I didn't need that radar at that time because I could see the fire in this guy's eyes. And I'm sitting there thinking like, he's coming right at me. There's a bunch of people around, but he was like zeroed in on me. And I'm thinking, oh man, what did I say? What, what, what did I do? And he kind of came right up to me and reached his hand out to shake my hand back when we were allowed to do that. Uh, and grabbed my hand really, really tight and shook it and asked me a question that was an accusation. The question is this, why do you have tattoos? I was like, wow. And then my, my question was, well, how long have you been attending our church here? He said, well, this is my first Sunday. I was like, so think about this, all right? The first time you've ever been to this church 
And, you know, maybe questions ought to be, hey, what do you guys believe as a church? Or what's your mission as a church? Or how, how are you as the people of God loving and serving your city? But rather, he wanted me to know that he was very disappointed that this pastor had tattoos. I'm sure he had a verse from Leviticus 19 bouncing around in his mind somewhere. But, but that's the kind of question we see happening here in the passage in verse 14. It's not really a question, it's more an accusation. Not about tattoos, but about fasting. Look what it says in verse 14. It says, then the disciples of John, that's John the baptizer, the forerunner of Christ, he had disciples. It says, those disciples of John came to him saying, why do we, we, disciples of John, and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. All right, there's the accusation couched in the form of a question. Here's what they're saying. In other words, if you and your disciples were truly holy, if you were truly godly and you really loved God, you would fast at least as much as we do. Um, now, why was fasting for them such a big deal? Here's why. Because devout Jews of the day would fast at least two times a week. Okay, so we just came out of Lent and we were asking the church to let's fast and pray together on Wednesdays once a week. But these folks were doing it two times a week in spite of the fact that fasting was actually only required one day out of the year according to the Old Testament. So according to God's word at the time, there was only one fast that was actually required, and that was on the Day of Atonement when the high priest would offer sacrifice for the people's sins for that year. That was the only time in the Old Testament that God actually required his people to fast. Doesn't mean it was wrong to do it any other days, but according to God's word, God's people were only required once a year. Now, unfortunately, by the time Jesus shows up in Jesus' day, fasting had devolved into a means of trying to gain God's favor, like special merit with God. And the more you fasted and the more you mourned, the idea was the more God would be pleased with you and would accept you. And Jesus actually dealt with that issue. If you remember a few chapters ago in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, remember it? Here it is, Matthew 6, verses 1 through 18, but I'll just read 16. Jesus speaking to his disciples about fasting, he said this, and when you fast, when you fast, right? So fasting is fine, it's good, right? As long as it's done for the right reasons. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, all right? Those are the Pharisees. Don't look gloomy like them, for they disfigure their faces. Isn't that awesome? Like they were distorting their faces. They were, oh, this is so hard. Don't I love God, right? That's what they were doing. They wanted everybody to know that they were fasting for God. For they disfigure their faces, here it is, that their fasting may be seen by others. That was the reason. So that their, their fasting, this religious thing they were doing, could be seen by others. And Jesus said, well, they want to be seen by others. 
they have their reward. Now, with Jesus, we actually do see Jesus fasting one time in the Gospels. If you remember back, uh, right before his public ministry, it says that he went into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And that's where he was, was tempted at the end of that by Satan, if you remember that account. But that's really the only time we see Jesus recorded in the Gospels is fasting. Of course, he would have done it on the Day of Atonement because that would have been obedience to the Scriptures. So he would have obeyed on that day and he would have encouraged his or he would have taught his disciples to do the same. But we don't see anywhere else Jesus requiring his disciples to fast. So now back to, back to verse 14, to that original question accusation. Look at verse 14. Why do we and the Pharisees fast? but your disciples do not fast. Now, notice how Jesus responds. He responds with a question of his own. Verse 15, very beginning of verse 15. And Jesus said to them, in first metaphor of the passage, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? So there's the question. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Now, this question is amazing. This question is loaded with meaning. Jesus is doing more than just asking, simply asking them a, a question in response to their question. What he's actually saying, what he's teaching them is that through, through the use of this metaphor that the long-awaited king had come. The Messiah, the one they've been looking for, he'd come and had already ushered in the kingdom of God, who they were longing for, what they were longing for was already there. See, in the ancient world, in first century, Jude, in first century Israel, wedding banquets were a massive deal. They were huge celebrations. They could go on for days. Sometimes they went on even for, for weeks with Lots of great music, dancing, great food, lots of laughter, great wine, which means it would have been Cabernet. But anyway, that's another thing. Which is probably why in the Old Testament, the promised future messianic kingdom was compared to a great, great wedding feast. It's a beautiful celebration. And you see in one of those passages, Isaiah uh, 62, uh, chapter 62, God is referred to as the bridegroom. Now, what's so amazing about that? Well, notice in verse 15, Jesus here is referring to himself as the bridegroom. You see that in verse 15? Essentially, what he's saying is, I am God, and I have come to be with my people. Why would they mourn? Why would they be fasting? It's time to celebrate. It's time to party. God is here. However, it doesn't mean there isn't a place for fasting and mourning. There is. Jesus keeps going. Look at the end of verse 15. The days will come when the bridegroom, now that's Jesus, is taken away from them. And there, in the original language there, it's this violent thing, all right? He's pulled away. He's violently taken away from them, and then they will fast. So there is a day coming when Jesus' disciples should fast. So obviously Jesus wasn't against his disciples fasting, he just wanted them to do it at the proper time, 
And the proper time is not when he's with them. The proper time was when he was no longer with them. All right? That's the first metaphor, but he's not done. He's got two more. Two more, all right? He's going to talk about a new patch on an old garment. And then he's going to talk about new wine destroying old wineskins. Now, let me kind of explain to you the purpose of the metaphors. And then I'll show you that as we walk through. Then we'll do some application. So the purpose of the metaphors was to illustrate for them the implications of the arrival of the kingdom of God. Implications for the Judaism of the day and some of the Old Testament systems that God had established that, that were meant to go away when Jesus arrived, that they were just foreshadowings. They were just pointing towards Jesus. The New Testament says they were actually like tutors to kind of lead them towards Christ. But now it was time for them to go away because Jesus had come. The reality was there, no longer any need for types and shadows. So that's what he's getting at. Now, let me show you that. First metaphor, the new patch on the old garment, verse 16. Look what it says. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. All right, this one makes sense, perfect sense. You don't want to sew an unshrunk patch onto an old garment because what's going to happen the first time that garment is washed with the patch on it? What's the patch going to do? Oh, wait, okay. We're not patching any clothes around here, are we? Forgot this is Denver. We're too cool for that. So anyway, like patching the garment, when it shrinks, like if you wash it, it's going to shrink, and it's going to rip away from the garment and make a bigger hole than was there before, okay? Now, next metaphor, new wine and old wineskin, 17. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into what? Fresh wineskins. And so both are preserved. The both there would be the new wine and the new wineskins. Now, this one's not quite as obvious. Apparently, the other one wasn't as obvious as I thought. But this one, you know, none of us are drinking wine out of wineskins. Don't be coming over to my house. You can bring a box of wine, but don't bring a wineskin. That's, that's weird, all right? So what is a wineskin? Well, it was a container that they used to carry wine around with them. It, it was just basically animal skins that had been treated. But over a period of time, those, those skins would wear out and lose elasticity and begin to leak and would eventually like explode or fall apart. You would never want to put new wine in old wineskins. Why? Because the new wine is still fermenting. It's still in that process, and it's really kind of a, a violent process. There's a lot of movement, and there's gases being created, and, it, and it's churning. And that process would break old, frail wineskins, and the wine would be lost. So Jesus said, new wine needs to be put in new, fresh, flexible containers so that the new wine isn't lost. So here's the question. What is Jesus talking about? What? That is a weird way to answer a question. Three metaphors in a row. What's he getting at? 
Essentially, those old structures, not, not the Old Testament, we're going to get to that in a minute, but some of those old structures like Old Testament Judaism, things like the temple, uh, cleansing rituals, dietary laws, sacrificial system, all that have served their purpose. It's not that they were bad, they were just limited, they were just temporary, they were just supposed to be shadows of Jesus. They were supposed to be ultimately pointing to him. And now that he's here, the reality has come. They need to go away. They're like old wineskins and there's new wine here, Jesus is saying. Now God's doing a new thing that, by the way, was prophesied in the Old Testament. And that new thing is happening in and through Jesus. Okay. Now, what do we do with that? Well, there's a lot of things we could do with that. There's a lot of ways we could apply these verses. Let me just give you a few. The first one is this. Jesus is not doing away with the Old Testament scriptures. You need to know that. He's fulfilling them. Okay, let me say that again. Jesus is not doing away with the Old Testament scriptures. He is fulfilling them. This is massive in the day and age we're living in because within Christian circles in certain churches, there's a pressure to do away with the Old Testament. There's this view that, well, Jesus came and he did away with the Old Testament, so we never have to worry about the Old Testament. Now it's just all about the New Testament. Don't ever need to think about the Old Testament. Listen, that is not true. Jesus did not come to do away with the Old Testament. It's not obsolete for us as Christians. It's God's word to us, amen? It's not obsolete. He's not doing away with the Old Testament. Listen to his own words from Matthew 5, 17. Jesus said this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, why did he have to say that? Because he was being accused of coming and doing away with the Old Testament. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, were saying that because he wasn't living up to their standards. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. They had added so much to God's word that they actually held up as more important and more powerful than God's word itself. Jesus was absolutely obeying all of God's law. He wasn't obeying the law of the religious leaders because that was all man-made stuff. It was legalism. And so he came, don't think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. I'm not here to destroy it. I'm here to show you what it really looks like. I'm here to do all of it. And he goes on to say, there's not one little bit of the law that I'm not going to fulfill. I'm doing it all. He fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures by perfectly obeying all of God's law found in the Old Testament for us. We, we heard it talked about earlier as we were dedicating these families, right? That Jesus came and did for us and obeyed for us in all the ways we failed. We've broken all of God's law, but Jesus came and fulfilled all of God's law, not because he himself needed to, but for us. For us, he did that for us. And he also fulfilled the law because he was what the Old, Old Testament was actually pointing to. The Old Testament is ultimately all about Jesus. And Jesus actually said that about himself. 
So he's not doing away with the Old Testament. He is fulfilling it. Now, he's not doing away with the Old Testament, but he is doing away with some of those covenantal issues, some of those uh, structures in Judaism that no longer apply, the types and the shadows in the Old Testament that were meant to point to Jesus, and now were no longer necessary. Things like the temple. Why was there no longer any need of the temple? Because Jesus is the temple. The temple was meant to point to the coming temple. No more sacrificial system, no more. Why? Because Jesus was the final sacrifice. No longer do we need the blood of bulls and goats to cleanse us. All the cleansing rituals, right? The water purification rites. And it's very interesting, by the way, the very first public miracle that Jesus performed was at a wedding feast, by the way, and he turned the water into wine. Remember that? Why was that water there? It was to purify them. They washed their hands. They would wash their feet so that they could be pure as they gathered together so they didn't, with their hands, eat any type of bacteria as they were eating with their hands. Uh, and here's what's awesome. Jesus shows up and says, hey, you don't need that anymore. You don't need that anymore. Let me give you some good wine, which, by the way, is a picture of his blood that was going to be shed. But that overflowing wine, because he made a lot of wine, was also symbolic. That's an Old Testament prophecy that when the kingdom of God comes, the vats of wine would be overflowing. No, no more do we need those cleansing rituals. No more dietary laws. Thank you, God, I can eat bacon, all right? Vegetarians, love you, but I'm eating my bacon, all right? They're all obsolete because Jesus had come and there was no more need for those types and shadows because the reality of the things has come in Christ. By the way, that's what the entire book of Hebrews is all about. Go check it out sometime towards the back of the New Testament and see how Jesus is better than all those outdated, obsolete systems and structures that were pointing to him. Okay? So he's not doing away with the Old Testament. He is fulfilling the Old Testament. Number two, Jesus is, and this one could get a little personal, so bear with me. Jesus is not compatible with man-made religion. He's not compatible with man-made religion. Why? Because he came to offer relationship. He came to offer relationship rather than religion. So could the contrast be any more obvious? Here is Jesus God in the flesh saying that he came to bring an entirely new way to commune with God. It's through him. It's through relationship with him. We now have access with God, the Father. And it's similar to an incredible wedding feast with food, the best food and the best wine. Right? It's a celebration. It's a party. (laughs) And then you have John's disciples. And you have the Pharisees missing out on the party and missing the fact that the kingdom of God was right there staring them in their face. And they were missing it. The long-awaited Messiah was there and they were missing him. Why? Because their way 
of relating to God had again devolved into cold, outwardly focused rituals rather than warm, heartfelt expressions of devotion to God. The tragedy actually is that the Pharisees and other religious leaders had turned Judaism into a completely different religion than what God had laid out for Israel in the Old Testament. They had taken his commands and in an effort to make sure that they fully obeyed them, they added to God's commands, right? Like God's commands in the Old Testament aren't hard enough to obey. They, they made it even harder. They added to those commands hundreds and literally hundreds of man-made rules and regulations that over time became more important to them than God's actual commands in the scriptures. For example, fasting, right, from our passage. Remember, I told you that God in the Old Testament only commanded fasting one one day out of the year. Again, they could do it other days, but he only commanded one day on the Day of Atonement. But they added to that day many other days and set, set that standard of the elite of the elite, like the really godly, like if you really worship God and love him, you're gonna fast two days a week. And on top of that, you're gonna let everybody know it. Right? They had established that. And they looked down on everybody else who wouldn't keep up with them. And they just couldn't understand why Jesus and his disciples didn't do what the truly godly religious Jews were doing, fasting at least twice a week. See, the problem is they, they were viewing the practice of fasting as a means to earn God's favor rather than a means to commune with the living God because they already had God's favor. Now, I wonder how many of us are doing the same thing. I wonder how many of us, our Christian experience, our relationship with God has turned into cold, calculated, outward rituals. And we're missing out that, no, 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 that's old wine. That's old wineskins. That's, like that, that's an old garment. You've got a, you, you're a new patch, right? You're, you're new wine and new wineskins. Jesus came to give you something more, something better, something greater than cold, dead religion. He gave, came to give you relationship with the God of the universe, your creator. And that's the difference between religion and relationship with God, isn't it? It's either doing things in order to gain God's love and acceptance, which is a way to think of religion, or doing things, right, fasting or other things, because you already are loved and accepted by God in Christ, and you just want to grow in intimacy and relationship with him. You just want to go deeper into the relationship you already have because of Christ. And Jesus said, hey, I'm bringing something new, new wine that will cause the old wineskins to burst. All these types, all these shadows, all this just forms an outward cold religion done away with because new wine needs new wineskins. Jesus is not compatible with man-made religion. He's not just, by the way, he's not just a good teacher or prophet. 
Some, some religions will give Jesus that, or others will say, oh yeah, he was a good prophet. He, he was a good teacher, right? Listen, either Jesus is Lord, God, Savior, Christ, or he was a delusional, narcissistic psychopath. He's one or the other because he claimed to be God over and over and over again in the gospels. Our passage for the day, once again, saying, hey, I'm the bridegroom. I told you I was coming, I'm the bridegroom, claiming to be God. He said things like, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. Listen, anyone who says and believes that about themselves is either insane or they really are God. It has to be one or the other. And of of course, Christians are Christians because we believe, based on the historic evidence of the resurrection, he was who he claimed to be, Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh, to come to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. And then lastly, last application, Jesus is not compatible with the world's version of the good life. He's for the good life, just not the culture's version of the good life. Don't be mistaken, like God doesn't mind parties. He's not compatible with the world's version of the good life because he offers the life that is really life. That's what he came to do not some alteration to the culture's version of the good life. To give us life that is really life. See, the world or the culture says that the good life is having a great education and perfect career and plenty of money, all the sex you want with whoever you want, freedom, freedom to do whatever you want, freedom for all the vacations you want, hobbies and access to great restaurants and great food and drink and plenty of entertainment and maybe eventually a spouse to settle down with and 1.5 kids. Unless you're at park and apparently it's like eight kids. I don't know, but. And if you want it on top of all that, you could even sprinkle a little Jesus on there, right? A little Jesus salt. Just sprinkle him on. It's okay, you got all that. Just sprinkle Jesus on there somewhere. Or, or whatever religion, religion makes you feel more comfortable or no religion at all, because you don't really need that for the good life. That's the good life according to many people who live in Denver. But if that's the good life, then man, lots of people are attaining it. Lots of people are pursuing it. Lots of people are pretty close to living that. And, and there's a lot of unhappy, disillusion unsatisfied people in our city. You see it everywhere. Why? Because the old wineskins have fallen apart. Those structures that we've been pursuing and chasing and things that we thought, that's where you find life, that's the good life, that garment is being ripped apart, especially in the last year. And then Jesus comes along and says, hey, that structure that system of trying to achieve that good life, it's old, it's tired, it's fallen apart. But here's the good news. I've come to bring you new wine, 
that requires new wineskins. And here's all you have to do to receive it. All you have to do to accept that is die. Wow. Okay. That's really encouraging. All right. Baby dedication day. We're talking about dying here. This is great. All right. All you have to do is die. Die to what? Die to that pursuit. Die to trying to find the good life outside of the one who is the author of life. See how silly that is when you actually sit down to think about it. The author of life says, I will give you life. And we say, thank you. I'm going to find life outside of that. How does that work? It actually logically doesn't even make sense. But all you have to do is die to that old pursuit, find new life in him. He's he's saying, hey, I'm going to show you how all of those things, the career and sex and hobbies and freedom and money and spouse and kids, all those things can be such beautiful, good things. I'm going to show you how all of those things find their ultimate fulfillment in and through me. But what you have to do is let go of the old wineskins. Get let go of that old wine. Receive the new wine. Receive the new wine skins that can only be found in a relationship with Christ. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 9, 23 and 25. He says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would be my disciple, if anyone would live the life that I, I, I'm calling them to, let them deny themselves, deny yourself, which is the opposite of the culture's good life. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. Die to yourself daily and follow Jesus. He goes on to say, for whoever would save his life will lose it. All right? Whoever is is trying to live life outside of Christ's call, actually, you're not going to live life. You're going to lose that life. But whoever loses his life, says no to that, turns their back on it, dies to that, whoever loses his life for my sake will actually save it, will actually find life. It's upside down. Self-denial and turning to Christ is where you actually find life. And then all those things of life get reoriented in all the healthy ways with Jesus right there at the center. For what does it, this is what he says, For what does it profit a person if they gain the whole world and lose themselves? Some translations say lose their own soul. What did it profit when that's the case? Um, Great theologian Diedrich Bonhoeffer, his interpretation of those verses is this. When Jesus calls a person, he bids them to come and die. Come and die. What he meant was die to the ways of trying to live the good life outside of Christ. Die to yourself. Why? Because those wineskins aren't going to last. They're already falling apart. They can't contain the new wine that he came to bring. He said that I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. And so my question is, would you receive that life in Jesus today? Christian, will you live into what you already have? Those of you who are not yet followers of Jesus, would you believe that this is true?
Let's pray. Father, I, I just want to thank you that you love us. You love us so much that you are willing to share truth with us from your word. And so often it's very countercultural to what we, we live in through the week. And so God, I thank you for speaking, not just through your word, but by your spirit. And I believe right now, Lord, your spirit is moving. He is taking your word and driving it into our hearts. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what we need to hear today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.